I'm Ajel Shang. You're listening to How on Earth, KGNU's science show. Today is Tuesday, August 11th, 2020. Today, we learn about the neuroscience of pain. Chronic pain is a debilitating condition for millions of people worldwide. But what role does our brain play in processing pain? Cognitive neuroscientists using advanced imaging techniques are making remarkable discoveries about our brain. They can measure and model brain systems linked to our pain and emotions. This is shedding new light on interventions for people who suffer with chronic pain. Tor Wager is a distinguished professor in the neuroscience department at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. He is one of the top pain neuroscientists in the world. Tor Wager was formerly at CU Boulder as professor of psychology and neuroscience, and much of the work he describes in our interview was done at CU. Tor Wager, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you. Nice yeah, thanks. Here. Yeah, thank you very much for talking with us. So let's start with the common perception people have about pain. Most people, including me, have had this simplistic view that pain is a signal that the body sends up to the brain. It's a bottom-up process. But your work shows that the pain experience is much more complex. Can you elaborate? There has been this view of pain for a long time as something that happens to the body, and the brain just registers it, as you said. The old medical school diagrams have lots of detail on peripheral receptors and nociceptive circuits, which are the, those that carry pain-related information to the brain. And then it just kind of goes up to the brain and poof, pain emerges. And what we've learned over the last 10 or 15 years has precipitated a real paradigm shift in how we think about pain. Nociceptive input or what's happening in your body is certainly one ingredient, but the brain continually interprets that input in the context of other kinds of things that are happening uh, in your environment, in your brain, in your body. And it's that interpretation that, that creates the sense of pain and the suffering that comes from that. One way to say it is that pain is a constructed experience, and no susceptive input from the body is one, one of those ingredients. <laughs> For someone who lives in chronic pain, do you think that there is a neural signature that is just pain? Is it separate and distinct from certain emotions that you think are related to it? You know, when I started this work, I took the, our work on pain uh, using brain imaging or fMRI. I took the view that we would be able to find one signature or pattern that tracks pain across different circumstances. That's the, the, the experience of pain. And that's the sort of parsimonious view, for, you know, without better knowledge. And I think that what we've learned since then is that there is a, a network or circuit that we can identify that, that tracks immediate evoked pain very reliably across individuals and across types of pains. It could be a, a hot plate on your arm or pressure on a limb. All of these types of pains do seem to be tracked at least in part by the same system. And that is a system that makes a lot of sense in terms of what we know about circuits carrying and sending information. But we've also learned that in some circumstances, what contributes to, to what people label as pain and the causes of suffering really go beyond that and are, are at least partially or, or maybe largely independent of that 
immediate pain input. And those circuits have to do with our emotional lives and maybe most relevant, they also have to do with how we tag events as relevant and avoid doing things that lead to pain. So it's not just that we're, you know, the experience of pain right now is, is so bad from moment to moment, but that our brains are continually learning to predict what kinds of actions are associated with pain, what kinds of thoughts, what kinds of scenarios, and all of a sudden, all of those widening array of scenarios get tagged as, as pain-related or threatening, and, and they, they cause a lot of fear and avoidance. And that's one of the big problems, I think, that, that uh, those with chronic pain have. Would you say that's the chief difference between acute pain and chronic pain? Is that the chronic pain brings with it a lot of the emotions that are associated with the whole experience? Well, I, I think so. And it's, it's not only that there are emotions that come with pain, which of course there are, right? Um, it's something I think that's more profound than that. Um, and there's, there's a lot we don't know, but it's, it's kind of an entanglement of the circuits related to experiencing pain with the circuits that are involved in, in predicting and avoiding that pain. You know, I think one way to think about this is, is that is that our, our brains are, are learning all the time. They're making inferences or guesses as to, as to what's, you know, what's threatening and what's safe. And, and what essentially the brain's computing, how much pain should I be feeling? And if you have a certain level of, of input from the body, if one is in a safe context, then this is ignorable. And the brain has mechanisms for literally turning it down or blocking it at the spinal level. If the context suggests that, that that experience in the body is threatening or harmful or dangerous, then the brain has mechanisms for amplifying it from the spinal level all the way up through the central mechanisms that construct pain experience and, and making it essentially a, a, a more aversive experience, a more painful experience. If you play that out over time, what initially, let's say, started as a, an injury, a, a, an injury in the back, right, a real you know, structural injury with some tearing or pulling, and over time, the back might, might normalize. But what can happen is that the brain can learn that those signals coming from the back are danger signals and that other sensations, muscle sensations or twisting sensations or even other things that are not about, about the pain itself that are you know, situational cues can then be connected in with pain through learning processes, right? So the brain is learning that, oh, this is threatening and this is threatening and things that go in this, things that happen while I'm, while I'm running, those, those are all connected into the pain experience. So it's not that people with chronic pain have an emotional problem and not a pain problem. They absolutely have a pain problem. It's that this natural process of learned avoidance and prediction has begun to enhance that pain, you know, over time. And the longer and the more attention one pays to this, the symptoms for the longer and the more dangerous they seem and the more unpredictable they seem uh, and the more they seem like they're signs of long-term damage, then the more the brain amplifies that pain construction process. And so they feel more pain. I want to ask you about pain medication. A recent NPR investigation reported that opioids are still being prescribed at very high rates. Or is the neuroscience instructing people on the brain's processes involved with chronic pain that could be treated without the pharmacological intervention? 
I, I don't think we have a full handle on what the active ingredients are uh, psychologically and behaviorally that can maximally relieve pain. But um, some work that, that we've been doing and, and some uh, ideas that have been gleaned from, from various sources, you know, whether it's a physiotherapist or a psychiatrist or a, a pain psychologist, people have kind of discovered some of the same principles over and over again. And I think for me, the core of that is to, to realize that pain doesn't always mean damage or danger. And, and even to realize that for, for oneself, right, this resonates with some people that, that they can be in pain, but they, it clicks in and they realize that this is actually a problem of hyper arousal, hyper attention to pain, hyper learning by the central nervous system. It's not, you know, it's not the, the patient's fault. It's nobody's fault, really. The, a sort of negative interpretive, interpretation of pain can play into that and amplify it over time so that then you have a real problem. And to realize that this is happening and instead of avoiding pain, to reverse it and to actually start to notice those sensations that are labeled as painful and experience them, uh, even approach them, right? Seek them out in, in a safe context and, and realize that these sensations are not signs that, that your body is falling apart, but instead to reappraise those as signals that are aberrant brain signals. So, so if you go from avoidance, fear and avoidance, to approach and, and even sort of curiosity, you're going, wow, this, this pain is sort of constructed by my brain. And if you can get to that point, then, then people can really turn a corner and they can, they can really get dramatically better. That doesn't mean that's true for all people with all kinds of pain all the time, but in our study, we, we looked at 150 chronic back pain patients, and we found that, uh, and these were people who'd been in pain an average of, of 10 years oh, before geez. going into the study. So it was really debilitating for a lot of them, and 75% of them were pain-free or nearly pain-free after a month of practicing a certain kind of attitude. What does your science show about the placebo effect? Yeah, the, the, the work on the neuroscience of placebo effects, which has been one of something that's near and dear to my heart for the last almost 20 years now, what it's shown us is that pain and other kinds of symptoms too, even symptoms of Parkinson's disease or depression, are very intimately intertwined with expectations and with your conception of the, what the causes and situations are that are driving that pain. And so the placebo paradigm is you know, to deliver a fake drug in a scanner, let's say, with pain, and then a, a control treatment that is pharmacologically identical, which is to say that there's no drug at all, but we tell people that this is, is simply a control. So we're manipulating the belief itself. What we found is that that can have are quite important effects on the brain and body. It can cause the release of opiates, the key centers in the brain that, that are opiate releasing. It can reduce pain-related activity in many areas that are associated with pain in the brain uh, and, and that pain construction process. It can activate what we think of as descending modulatory centers that can turn pain down or up at the spinal level. And it can affect signals in the spinal cord. So it can have all of these important effects. This doesn't mean that all placebos work all the time. There are particular things that can happen that can shift us into that placebo response state. 
and we're still learning a lot about what those are. The placebo work is kind of an entry point into this broader idea that, that the brain is predicting and constructing experiences of all kinds. So let me ask you, what advances, in this is such a fascinating field, but what are the advances in uh, MRI, any instrumentation, modeling, or even machine learning that have been key for making these very interesting discoveries over the last decade? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, MRI is not, it's a pretty young field. Okay. It's about, you know, and now it's, it's getting close to 30 years old. <laughs> right? Okay. So, uh, it, but, but, you know, it's, it's really come a long way from sort of very early days and very small samples, there have been several factors that have really changed. You know, our, the machines have gotten better. Our resolution has gotten better. The analysis pipelines and techniques have, have become more standardized. We've gone from, from studying just a few people and assuming, you know, two or five or six people or ten people and assuming that, that we can generalize to all people from that to now studies that are in the, the, the thousands Uh, or patient studies that are in the hundreds, or one population study called the UK Biobank, which is scanning 100,000 people um, in connection with all kinds of population health data from this sample in the UK. So we have a big data revolution. You know, we have better machines. And in particular, I think that, yes, the the integration of machine learning and the more more and more widespread adoption of, of machine learning principles and approaches uh, into imaging has really precipitated a, a revolution, a revolution in how we can analyze data and find patterns, which are essentially these sorts of needles in haystacks, right, right. which relate to, to the clinical conditions that we care about. One final question for you. Has your own belief system changed or evolved as a result of your research into the subject? That's a good question, huh, Joe? <laughs> no, it's funny. I came into this very skeptical of placebo effects. Yeah. Even though I, I was sort of, I've known a lot of people who are real believers in the power of the mind and the power of thought, but I always kind of wanted to know the truth either way. And so I've been on that journey to sort of discover that. And yes, I think that this research convinced me that placebo effects can be important and they can have physiological effects. They've also, I think we're still right in the thick of it. You know, we're in the middle of it because I, I think that we're learning more that not all types of expectations or placebo effects or suggestions work equally well. I think there are certain techniques or, or principles that, that can produce powerful effects, but also we can't sort of just talk, you know, talk ourselves into anything, anytime. I think my, my belief in how our brains work and the power of the mind over the body, so to speak, have kind of deepened beyond this simple kind of yes or no answer to, to really understanding principles that are sort of grounded in, in computation and grounded in evolution that can help us inform exactly how those, those things work. So that, that's the fun thing for me is that I really am, I do feel like I've learned things from the science that we've been doing, and that's a place you really want to be. <laughs> well, it's a very interesting field, and thank you for your work, and thank you for speaking with us today. Well, thanks very much. It's really a pleasure to be able to talk to you. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to How on Earth, KGNU's science show. We are interviewing Tor Wager and Charlie Merrill about the brain processes associated with people who suffer from chronic pain.
Charlie Merrill is a physiotherapist in Boulder who has worked with athletes for over 20 years. One of the most common conditions Charlie treats in athletes is chronic pain, where he uses the principles developed by neuroscientists like Torweger in his practice. You see this a lot in your work. What exactly do you see with pain and emotion? Yeah, I, I love this idea that Tor was sharing about the brain as kind of a prediction machine where it becomes really good at trying to, 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 to predict um, things that might be dangerous. And as a result, it produces pain habitually um, in response to those variables. And those variables, as Tor said, could be connected to the pain itself, and they could be things that we've been conditioned to fear or worries that we have about getting old or about our body being broken or damaged or wearing out. And then the avoidance that comes with that where we stop doing things that we used to love that then we don't think we can do anymore because it hurts. But also the brain starting to, to learn and predict the output of pain based on other things in our lives, like other life stresses that we would never think would ever be linked or connected to our pain experience, like our primary relationship, or like our kids, or like our finances. Those things also become wrapped into the brain's tendency to want to predict danger, and they start to affect our pain experience as well. Well, see, that's what I find fascinating. I mean, I can understand fear and say, gee, I'm, maybe I'm getting a little too old to ride a motorcycle this fast or something like that. That's, that sounds rational to me. It sounds like good fear. But you're talking about emotions that have nothing to do with maybe somebody's lower back pain or somebody's foot pain. Yeah, and you could you see in the clinic sometimes that if you start to dig and really investigate, you can start to see these connections that maybe tie back to childhood experiences, and you can start to see why they might be linked and why they might start to convey an important message to that individual about what their pain means. A boulder... Boulder's a city where you treat a lot of athletes. You see a lot of athletic injuries in your work, don't you? Yes. What do you see a lot of? Well, in Boulder, it's, you know, runners and uh, cyclists, endurance athletes, crossfitters, rock climbers. I mean, you know, people do everything in this town. They play tennis. They play golf. So it's I get the whole spectrum of people in doing different types of athletic activities and usually trying to do it at a high level. And I think... What I see mostly is people trying to continue to do it at a high level as they get older. And when they see their performance start to suffer, when they start to have pain, one of the first things they do is compare themselves to how good they were when they were younger, which has its own level of fear <laughs> and, and stress <laughs> anxiety, yes. and anxiety and tends to then become linked with things like ageism, like I'm getting old and I, sh you know, I, I can't do this the way I used to and my body's falling apart and you know, all these stories that we tell ourselves that, that create fear. And so I see that pattern a lot um, in older athletes who are trying to compete with their younger selves. And as a result, they, they get into the spiral of negative self-talk and fear and disappointment and f feelings of failure you know, and all these other things that, again, just serve to sensitize our nervous system and actually magnify or amplify the pain experience. And then you, it's really hard to sort of pull people out of that, that spiral. When Tor Wager was speaking about the uh, conception of, of self or context, is this what he's talking about, how this, this enhances or modulates your experience of pain, is the context in which the pain is experienced. So, yes, I have foot pain, but, but actually the context is 
I didn't used to have this pain 10 years ago when I ran the same, the same route. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So anytime some physical symptoms start to threaten your concept of self, there, there's a danger there. And the danger alarm system in the brain that's trying to protect us is going to go off. It doesn't seem like always the most helpful message if you look at it on the surface. But as you start to investigate this with clients and look deeper, you realize sometimes even long after the fact what that helpful message might have been, that there's a moment, an opportunity for growth, or that there's something that that athlete, that person needed to learn in order to move forward. And in the meantime, the brain decided to take away their loved activity, their preferred activity to threaten their sense of self. The brain um, was an, acting like a nanny. A the little brain, bit. The brain took away your favorite toy or your favorite activity and said, you need to learn something. You need to learn something. You need to pay attention. And until you receive that message, I'm going to take that thing away from you, right? It doesn't seem like a, like a very good system, does it? Well, it seems like my brain is a nanny state, and that's actually terrifying me right now. <laughs> You're having some anxiety as we're talking <laughs> <laughs> about this. I mean, and this is what Tor was talking about is the, the therapy in that case starts to look more like attending to the symptoms and relating to the symptoms in a new way instead of relating to them as a threat or as dangerous. You need to help to support people to watch their symptoms and look at their symptoms and the symptom behavior and attend to them in a way that's actually a helpful message instead of a dangerous, threatening bully or a mean nanny. And only then are you able to really understand it in, in, in a way where you can start to move past it and create change. Avoiding it um, completely, pushing it away is not usually helpful because the brain will amplify it more. Talking about it obsessively and compulsively, especially in a way that is scary and dangerous, has a very similar effect. And so there's this middle way of being able to attend to it and understand it as non-dangerous. And that's when we see the nervous system start to desensitize, start to regulate, and we see cure. I mean, we don't just see coping in that case. We're not just talking about people learning to cope better with their pain. We're looking at, at a cure. Wow. You, had, you, you spoke once of a runner who had pretty severe foot pain and she was sidelined for a year and it looked like it sounded like a very legitimate case of plantar fasciitis and yet it, there was a strong emotional component to it yeah there's there then there can be there can be multiple strong emotional components in that case when it's stuck around that long and you heard tor talking about how there are so many variables that then become wrapped up in the brain's um, tendency to want to predict to predict and unpacking all of that can become can become challenging. You know, you're you're looking at um, working with the with the person to try to build this story of of how they got to where they are and all the things that are that are um, uh, signaling danger and starting to find more things that help them feel safe and starting to move some of those things that they used to think were dangerous back into the the safety side of the scale. And um, and again, that process is um, is how you help people move. Th through that pain experience is by moving them from danger to safety. So it's a reconceptualization, and you're actually activating different parts of your brain. Yeah, just the, yeah, just the uh, just the act of going through that process of trying to understand and educate someone on what's going on has the ability to help them feel more safe over the course of time. And of course, with someone like that, you're having to also spend time process processing the big emotions right. of that one year that they've been in pain, both the emotions around um, having been in pain for so long 
and the grief and sadness and sense of loss that comes with that and sometimes the anger. Um, but you're also helping them process other emotions, again, that got wrapped up into the brain's predicting tendency that, that are around life events that, that never seemed like they would ever be tied to, to that person's foot pain or plantar fascia pain. What is it about your work that led you to this place where you realize the importance of people's emotional state? I think because I'm a physio, because I'm a physical therapist, and I have a lot of time with people, I really get to know my clients well. And when you get to know people deeply, you start to see all the other things that are going on in their lives. And it didn't take much for me to start to notice that, yes, people's objective findings weren't real consistent with their, what they were describing as their pain experience. They wouldn't be tender in areas where you'd expect them to be tender. They wouldn't have a presentation like you'd expect someone with a structural problem. You know, I used to be able to contrive some really good biomechanical explanation to help people feel safe, the one that was body-oriented. But over time, as I got to know people, I was realizing that a lot of times that wasn't enough. And I have all this insight into their lives that I wasn't really using. And when I started to see that the objective findings weren't showing up in a clear pattern, I felt... It was my obligation, maybe is the wrong word, but I felt like it was it was really important for me in the face of this new science to start to 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 support them in a new way and to start to help them understand. I think what's so interesting is what's changed for me is I used to think that they were coming to me because I had all the answers, and now I'm realizing that in them in them coming to me, I need to understand that they are the ones that have the answers, and my job is to help unearth those and draw those out of them. So I don't feel like I am the problem solver anymore. I feel like the client is the problem solver and I'm just the guide. I think in the context of placebo, you talked with Tor about placebo, we talked about how manual therapies, whether it's needling or manipulation, can act like a strong placebo. I mean, I've had many clients over the course of time that have come into me with months or years of pain. And I've done one session of needling. I can think of one client who had foot pain, if we're talking about plantar fascia pain, and I didn't even touch her foot, and I needled her glute, the muscle that's right next to the sciatic nerve, which brings information down to the foot. I released that muscle with a few needles, and it completely eliminated her foot pain. I could easily contrive some explanation for how the sciatic nerve might have been compressed by that muscle, and I might have even explained it to her that way. Sure, sounds, sounds legitimate It sounds to legitimate, me. but, yeah. you know, the fact that in one session of needling, I can eliminate her symptoms, and she goes off a week later or two weeks later to run the New York City Marathon, like, to me, that sounds an awful lot like placebo. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I'm not going to take that much credit that I'm that good at my manual therapy skills that I can expect miracles like that, you know, on a regular basis without some help from, from the placebo effect. Okay, so you see results sometimes that don't correlate with you, what you know to be moderately helpful physical methods don't often correlate with the huge yeah. result that you see. So you, you, you suspect that placebo For is sure. play. Yeah, and it comes back to belief, right? If I'm really, um, if my theater in my evaluation and my treatment is sufficient to shift someone's belief, then they're going to have a positive outcome. If they believe that needling this part of their body is going to help their foot pain, it, it might. And it might do it really quickly, even after months or years of symptoms. And it's amazing. But then the skeptic in me asks, what about, um, let's say this person was very angry or fearful before, and they walked away just as angry and fearful because they believe that the microneedling worked. 
So those emotions are still at play. Those emotions are still at play, but uh, somehow we've we've modulated um, the nervous system such that the danger alarm has come down below some critical threshold below you know below uh, what you think would be a reasonable amount to cause pain. You're right that these other these other emotions might still be there, but we've reduced fear so much that that athlete then has the capacity to go run a marathon. The, there's part of me that feels like some people are just at a place of readiness. They've been suffering and struggling with things for so long, and they've seen so many different clinicians, and they just haven't gotten better, that by the time they come to see me, they're at such a place of readiness, and they're, as a result, so much more hopeful. And you combine that with my hopefulness and my optimism and hopefully my skills and my therapeutic alliance, my, my, my relationship skills with them. And it's almost like their brain says, all right, I'm done with this. I'm tired of this. We need to like, let this go now. Cause I'm ready to get back to living my life. And when people are at that place of readiness, maybe the cynical view would be they squash those other emotions down and compartmentalize, put them away because they're just tired of it. One of the really important roles that I have as a clinician at this point is not to just stop there and say, you know, I want you to compartmentalize that stuff away because what I don't want is for it to come back later. So I feel like I have a, um, uh, an important role in helping them unearth that as part of the process. Like, let's, let's turn, let's turn the, the pain sensitivity down because it's hard to learn when we're in pain. It's hard to... It's hard to understand new concepts when we're in pain, so we get the we get the pain to turn off, and then we can do some of this other work around learning about our emotions and learning about our triggers and talking about self-care and some of the other um, psychological factors that we know, so that 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 depression doesn't turn back on later. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. I produced the show remotely, and Maeve Conran engineered in the studio. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, with additional music from Sing King playing Johnny Cash's song, Hurt. You can find out more about Tor Wager's research at Dartmouth by linking to the How on Earth website. You can learn more about Charlie Merrill's performance at mperformance.com. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, a KGNU Science Show, I'm Angel Shang.